I'm preaching through the book of Romans, and we're at chapter 9. Now, before you uh, pass judgment on this sermon on predestination, let me ask you this. Can you do any better? That's all. <laughs> I suppose that there are four uh, the, most, the four most controversial subjects about which a person could preach are these. The race issue, tongues, divorce, and predestination. <laughs> and I know a little, very little, about either of those four subjects. But now we've come to this chapter, and, you know, and if I dodged it, then you would really give me a hard time then. So I'm going to talk tonight about the doctrine of predestination, simply complex doctrine. Now you have a part in this um, study from chapter 9. Your part is that, that from this point on, do this with me. Don't let your mind wander, because you just can't um, let your mind wander. If you're watching on television or out here, and, and really get this. It, does, it is not possible. So you zero in. You listen intently to the words that are written, being open and teachable to that which may be contrary to what you have always known. You'll be doing that. That's your part. And my part is simply to unfold what is written. By way of introduction, it's necessary for us to understand, again, that the book of Romans is a book of the righteousness of God. Its theme is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness that God imparts to the believing sinner. So the Romans' theme is the righteousness of God imparted to the believing sinner. What that's like. It is a book on the righteousness of God. It is a book on the full scope of God's plan of salvation. Now, it doesn't just deal with conversion. Conversion is what happens at the point of your salvation, that aorist tense moment. It's not a book that deals with the moment of your salvation, conversion. It deals with the full scope of salvation. It deals with the whole spectrum of what it means to be saved. So that the book of Romans is a book on the plan of salvation in the full scope. The issue of this chapter is the issue concerning the Jews. That's what's on Paul's mind. And he begins to express these intense emotions at the beginning verses of chapter 9. Now he's written chapter 8, which begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. And all in between is this marvelous, marvelous treatment of the grace of God to man, so that man is no longer condemned, and nothing will ever separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he ends that great chapter and that, that passage that you and I are so familiar with and love. 
But then he gets to looking around, as it were, and he finds the absence of the Jews. Where are the Jews? It's amazing to me that when you read the book of Acts and the church exploded on the world in Jerusalem, most of those converts were Jews. Where are they now? As a matter of fact, by the time Paul finished his ministry, he was having to collect an offering for the church at Jerusalem, First Baptist Church at Jerusalem. So he's looking around, and for the most part, there is the absence of the Jew. He can't find them. And he remembers the blessing, the blessing of the Jews, and he voices it or writes it in verse 4, and he describes eight of the great blessings that the Jews are privy to and enjoy. Adoption as sons, glory, the covenant, the covenant, God's unconditional promise, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, the fathers, the patriarch, and from the Jews comes the Messiah. Oh, the blessedness, the blessed people call the Jews. And he looks around and he sees their absence is conspicuous to him. And he makes this intense statement that he's willing to forfeit his own salvation if it would mean the salvation of the Jews. That's pretty pro. That's a pretty amazing statement. If the Jews, his kindred, can enjoy the riches of God's blessing, he will forfeit his place in heaven. Anybody dare make that statement tonight? I don't see any hands. Now, he comes to deal with this matter then in the most controversial chapter in all the Bible, I believe. And so that's where we are, predestination. The issues of it, number one. The, the first principle is this, that predestination begins with the sovereign choice of God. It's called election. Predestination begins with the sovereign choice of God. Now I can just feel the vibrations coming back to me. You're thinking, I thought my salvation began with my choice. Well, you're, as far as your part, your conversion began with your choice. But you know what? You would have never chosen God if He hadn't chosen you first. And I've come to discover that Christianity is just man responding to God. God says, be holy as I am holy. In other words, our holiness is just in response to His holiness. We love Him because we love because He first loved us. So that our Christian agape, our Christian love, is just a response to His love. So that our choice of God, our acceptance of, the, of salvation's gift, is just a response to His choice for us. So that... Predestination begins in the sovereign choice of God where your salvation begins. And remember that we said last time we were talking about this introduction that we're, the chapter 9, as it were, is looking back over the shoulder of God. We're, we're in this position in heaven looking back over the shoulder of God, seeing God's movement and God's action so that salvation and all that it involves in its full scope begins with God's choice. 
Well, you say, well, that seems like a new thought. How new is it? Let me tell you how new it is. Folks like Tyndall and Wycliffe and Watts and Newton and Whitfield and Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, and Caney and Melanchthon, the great mind of the Reformation, Luther and Zwingli and Knox and Strong and Warfield and Spurgeon and Barnhouse all believe this doctrine. That's how new it is. I mean, that's older than I am. Not a new thought. So that basic to what we have as theology in evangelical 20th century Christianity is this, that salvation, predestination began with God's choice. Now, look at verse 6 and let's read that. He's going to show us kind of an illustration or analogy. He said, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There are other Israelis, Israelites who are not of Abraham. That's the new Israel, by the way. That's another sermon. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. He's quoting. Now watch this, what happens here. When God came to Abraham and promised Abraham that through him would come the nation that would bless the world, there is more to that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 than the fact that he's going to be a mighty nation and glorious as the beauty of the stars. It's more to it than that. Because the implication of that is that as the result of Abraham, through Abraham's loins, would come the blesser of eternal nations, of everlasting nations. It's the promise of the coming of Messiah. Through the loins of Abraham would come Messiah. Now normally, the, the next in line then, the firstborn to that person would be the one through whom that promise would be fulfilled. But then there came Ishmael. He's the firstborn son of Abraham. You knew that. And you, you want to say to me, well, of course, God wouldn't bring uh, you know, the uh, Messiah through Abraham and his handmaid. So what are you going to do with verse 9? For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This Messiah is going to come through not the firstborn, Ishmael, but, be, but through Isaac, this son who comes much later, watch, because it is the sovereign choice of God for that to happen. But notice verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now these twins came. The firstborn twin, as you know, was Esau. But look at this. For though the twins were not yet born before they were ever born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to His choice, look at that, might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. What He's saying is this, that in the history of God for the world, He made the sovereign choice that the younger would be served by the older, and the weak would be served by the strong, he made the sovereign choice that it would be the second-born twin through whom the uh, Messiah would come. Now, listen to me carefully. When you look, go back to your salvation as far as you can go, you may go back to when you were a nine-year-old child or a ten-year-old child, whenever, and you go all the way back to that time when you were 
to your conversion, to your salvation, and some of you can pinpoint the day. Let me tell you what. Your salvation goes a lot further back than that. It goes all the way back to the decree of God. It goes all the way back to the sovereign choice of God before you, just like Esau and Jacob, before you were ever born. Now, what we're talking about here is a God who is sovereign, and that's very important. As a matter of fact, I just copied out of, just clipped out of Tozier's marvelous book, The Knowledge of God. You need to get this. What he says is, what, what he says in his book is this. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Quote, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is, what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul. Listen to this profound statement. We tend by a secret law of the soul to, to move toward our mental image of God. Now let me tell you what Paul is doing. He is establishing what God is like, first of all. And He is a sovereign God who makes choices on the basis of His sovereignty. Alright? So, what he's saying is this. All the way back to the decree of God is your salvation. When you look at the salvation of the Jews, he's saying, I want you to know that I am responsible. Alright? Number two. The second principle or issue is this. Please get this down. Predestination. Now this may be a little um, heavy for some of you. and I already tell some of you your minds are a little bit off out. and Hang in there. Predestination upholds the perfect character of God. Let me tell you what happens when people start talking about predestination. The first thing that happens when you start a subject, when you start a discussion on the subject of predestination is that some people believe, some people tend to the, to the feeling that predestination threatens their character of God. It doesn't. It upholds it. Now I want to read verses 14 through 18. Follow with me. What shall we say then? And I want you to take your pencil if you got one, because I want you to circle cer certain words. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Circle the word injustice. And scratch out if you want to the word in. So it's justice. There is justice with God, isn't there? May, may it always be. We're putting that in a positive tense. For he says to Mo Moses, I will have mercy. Circle that. On whom I have mercy, word mercy. And I will have compassion, that word means love and action. Circle that word, on whom I have, will have compassion. 
so that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power, under, underline or circle the word power in you, that by my name... that that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth in you. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, what Paul is doing in this passage is teaching that God is perfect. Now look at his attributes. His attributes, he describes four attributes in this passage. He's just... He's merciful, He is compassionate, and He is omnipotent. Now, He is not, He doesn't just have justice, He is just. And He is, He doesn't just have mercy, He is merciful. And He doesn't just show compassion, He is compassion. And He doesn't just express power or have power, he's omnipotent. Now what Paul is about here is saying that if there is someone who has the ability to make a choice concerning one's salvation, God is the one who can do that. Now, whatever he does in the process or in the work of salvation, remember that he is not unjust. Now, I have sometimes, I have people say to me, I just wish I could get what I deserve. That's the last thing I want. You know. Now, listen to me carefully. God may not show you justice. He may not express or demonstrate or give you justice. You better hope He doesn't. But what He will never do is be unjust. I hope you can remember that. He may never be just to you, but He will never be unjust. And if He, is, if he never is just to you, that means that he, that he operates in grace and mercy and compassion. You see what I'm saying? But He will never be unjust, so that whatever is involved in predestination, be, remember that we began at this point establishing the fact that whatever happens in predestination, whatever that's in, 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 whatever is involved in that, we know this to be sure, that God is the right person to make that choice because He's just, merciful, compassionate, and omnipotent. Now man, it just assaults the dignity of man to think that He's not the one who can make the choice. Um, just as I was getting out of college, I was introduced to Karl Barth. Karl Barth is this German theologian. I wasn't introduced to him personally, but his, his theology. And uh, had to do a paper on Karl Barth, the theology of Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth is a German theologian who is a... Um, well, one of a better simplistic term, but he's a Calvinist in a sense that he believes in the ultimate triumph of grace. Now, Karl Barth would never go to hear Billy Graham preach because he doesn't believe in an hour of decision. He doesn't believe you have a decision. 
So here's Billy Graham up here talking about the hour of decision and giving an invitation. Karl Barth would say, man doesn't have a choice. Grace will ultimately triumph. And he doesn't have an hour of decision. God's already made the decision. See what I'm saying? And what you have on this end of the line over here is the ultimate triumph of the grace of God. And you have over here on the other side man's full responsibility. Now, I'm going to balance that. If, if you'll just give me time, I want to try to balance that. As a matter of fact, in chapter 10, we're going to talk about the responsibility of man. But what we've got here is this, that when God chooses and God calls, it is absolutely perfect and right. Now, so, so a guy came up to me the other day. He said, I've got it all figured out. He said, I can tell you how it works. He said, God has foreknowledge, and so God knew you were going to be saved, and that's why He chose you, because He knew you were going to be... That's not right. If that were true, that's somewhat, somewhat what some of us have believed all along. Is that, Well, God looked down into the future and from eternity in the beginning of time, and He saw who was going to accept, accept Him. Those are the people He called. That, that's not predestination. That's reacting to man. That would be God reacting to man. And so when He saw that man was going to choose Him, He chose man. You see what I'm saying? No, it's, it's much different than that. But whatever is involved, remember this, that we begin with the fact that God is perfect. He doesn't make a mistake. Now, somebody said, well, what are you going to do with this passage that says about Pharaoh? Well, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read from McGarman on that one. Listen to this. Just as certain passages attribute the hardening of Pharaoh's heart directly to God. Example, Exodus 4.1. And if you're in my class on Sunday morning, we've been, we're working on that. Exodus 7.3, etc. So other passages describe, or ascribe the hardening to Pharaoh himself. For example, Exodus 8.15, write that down, reads, When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And Exodus 8.32 states, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Regarding God's role in hardening whom he wills, Emil Brunner writes, quote, What the nature of his hardening is, he shows us in Pharaoh. He hardens the man who rebels against him. This attributes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart indirectly to God. As the consequence of Pharaoh's rebellion against him, the thought is similar to the revelation of God's wrath in Romans 1, 18-32. God hands men over to the disastrous consequences of their revolt against him. In this sense, he wills their reprobation. Now, let's go back to principle two. Are you totally lost? We'll catch up here. Predestination upholds the perfect character of God. It doesn't conflict with it. It upholds it. All right? Principle three. Watch this. Predestination identifies the responsibility of God. Now, I want to begin reading verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for... Who resists His will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, 
who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? You're going to argue with God? Or the potter does not have a right over... The, or on the contrary, who are you answers back? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why are you... Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel to honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the question is, who's at fault when man is lost Who's at fault? Who's responsible? Are you listening? Who is responsible if a man goes to hell? Sometimes you see, if I take this predestination to double predestination, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, then I'm going to say, well, if God chooses who's going to be saved, then He chooses who's going to be lost. So He's responsible for that. I want you to write this down and never forget it. God is responsible for man's salvation from the beginning of it to the end. But He is not responsible for man's lostness. He's not. Now who is? Well, watch this. If you remember when we were studying through here, it, we got to that difficult passage in the seventh chapter of Romans and it says... For as by one man, notice, by as one, by, for as by one man, not God, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, for all have sinned. So that who is responsible for man's lostness? Well, if you go ultimately back, you know, part of that answer is found in the fact of Adam's sin. For when Adam sinned, Man's nature is called, man received the nature of total depravity. That is, he was born with a bent, a propensity, an inclination to sin. He was born with an inclination, a propensity to sin, because he was of the family of Adam, as by one man, sinner in the world. It doesn't mean he was born a sinner. It means that he was born with a propensity to sin, meaning that he will certainly sin. You reconcile that and I'll, I'll give you an A. Now, with your New Testament, I want you to turn to that little passage, that little book of James, and I want us to begin reading in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, when he says that he is enticed by his own lust, he's talking about the fact that there is in the nature of man, having been born of Adam, the propensity, the inclination, the bent, the desire to sin, the lust to sin. And when he is 
he, he, he is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's him, the fact that he is a sinner by nature. Look here. He is a sinner by choice. Now watch this. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So that when he responds, when he yields to the sin that is a part of this propensity of his nature, then he becomes a sinner by choice. Who is responsible for man's lostness? Man is responsible for it. Now, he uses the illustration of the potter. Now, when this... When this clay comes to the potter, it's already, it already comes to the potter with its own nature, its own texture. And he makes out of that what he's got. Let me tell you something. Man comes to God with the nature of a sinner. And he is lostness is the result of his sin. Don't push this doctrine past its, its intention. Now watch this. There is what is called double predestination. Double predestination is the theory that God predetermines who's going to be saved and, who, and He predetermines who's going to be lost. I'm going to make this statement. You can, uh, you can challenge me if you want to. This is a true statement. The Bible nowhere talks of the predestination to be lost. Nowhere. It talks of the predestination to be saved. But it doesn't talk about the predestination to be lost. Alright? Principle number four. Predestination defends... The consistent plan of God. Now he mentions the Gentiles in verse 24. Even as, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those people who were not my people, my people. On her who has not believed, who was not beloved, beloved. I'm going to call the non-beloved, the loved. I'm going to call the non-people, people. I'm going to call Gentiles my people. And it shall be in, that, in the place where it was not said to them, you are not my people, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now look at verse 30. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Why? Look at verse 31. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Now look at the question. Here's the question. The question is, why did the Gentiles become righteous and the Jews didn't. Well, it was because the Jews didn't pursue the righteousness which is by faith. Now, what does that tell you? It tells us that right standing or righteousness is by faith. So we've made the full cycle. Now, here's the astounding thing. Here is the astounding thing. 
is that he finishes the chapter on predestination talking about the responsibility of man. Isn't that amazing? So the question is, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? Can you get this and just jot it down and then that's enough? What we're faced with tonight is what is called an antinomy. 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 A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. Now, an antinomy is this. It's two parallel principles that are irreconcilable, but both are true. So what we have is an antinomy. We have two parallel principles that are irreconcilable. You never get them together, and yet both of them are true. Now, you and I immediately can think of a perfect example of an antinomy. An antinomy, an example of an antinomy, other than the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of free will of man, is the God-man. That's an antinomy. For how can you be perfect God and perfect man at the same time? They're irreconcilable. And yet they're both true. And so you come to the doctrine of predestination with this understanding that this is a sovereign God with which we have to do. And He has chosen, elected, and called you. And yet you have responsibility in that thing. Two parallel doctrines, irreconcilable. Both are true. Now, there are two extremes that you and I are at the end of this sheet there, whatever it says. One is total rejection of this, where you say, no, I'm the one responsible, and I have total responsibility in this matter, and I don't believe it's a matter of God's election. I don't believe in election. The other extreme is, is that I'll, just, I'll do nothing, God, let God do it all. It's like what happened with the, you know, the old-time uh, hard-shell Baptist. If God's going to save them, they'll save them without your help or mine. You know, William Carey was going to be a missionary to India. I've been to the place where he made this famous statement. He was in this, in England, he was in this little group, little, little meeting hall. He wanted to go, be, go to England, uh, go to India, go to, the, go to Burma to be a missionary, somewhere over there. And the guy says, sit down, man. If God wants to save the pagans, He'll save them without your help or mine. And so the other extreme is that God calls these people, God chooses them, God elects them, and, 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 and He'll save them because He's chosen them, and we don't need to go out and witness to them. But if God didn't mean for us to go witness to them, He would never give them the Great Commission, right? Well, that's the doctrine, predestination. Now what I need, what you need to do for you... Pass judgment on this. Sit down with those principles. And even though it doesn't come out with some kind of little pat answer, those principles are incontrovertible to that passage of Scripture. Chapter 9 of Romans. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You'll bless this Word and help us to understand the magnitude of what it means to be saved. We'll give you all the praise and the glory.
in Christ's name. Not sure tonight whether we have someone who needs to make a decision, but we're going to just sing a stanza of an invitation and somebody might need to come tonight. You, you've heard God speak to you, call you. And this God who is calling you has a purpose for your life. Maybe you want to join the church or walk with God more closely or give your heart to Christ because he, if, he didn't, if, you, if He's called you, He chose you. So while we stand to sing, one stanza, you'll want to come right on the first as we stand to sing.